The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Our guest this week is journalist Mark Mathis. Mark is a former TV news reporter and anchor turned media consultant and trainer. He is the writer and narrator of the outstanding film Fractured, which is available at clearenergyalliance.com. I encourage listeners to check out that site, which again is clearenergyalliance.com, because it has truly superb short videos on energy that are great fun to watch. In 2002, Mark published Feeding the Media Beast, an easy recipe for great publicity. During that period, Mark was contacted by a small oil and gas trade group wanting assistance telling his story to the press. So to help this group, he immersed himself in the topic, learning what is real and what is misunderstood by most people. This led to Mark starting a nonprofit educational organization called Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. Mark's specialty and passion is collecting and curating information and making what would appear complex to be quite simple and accessible to the public, as the movie Fractured certainly is. During his time working in the media, Mark learned that the news was often slanted by journalists who are ignorant and or arrogant or driven by ideological agendas. So that'll be interesting to get into. So welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. I really want to tell the audience about Fractured. I have been in the energy business as a student, as a professional for over 60 years. I started in nuclear energy, went on to oil and gas, then on to coal, more recently, uh, wind and solar. So I have a great deal of expertise over 60 years. And uh, some months ago, when I got to see the movie Fractured, I realized <laughs> that a person watching this brilliant 90-minute film at the end of it would probably have 80% of the information that I've accumulated over 60 years. It, it absolutely uh, stunned me. And the reason it's so good is that uh, Mark will tell us about how it all started, but I know he started as a, uh, a journalist and got interested in the, uh, the subject of, of energy and more uh, the misconceptions about uh, energy so that when he, you know, dug into it as a novice, uh, he came up with just a fresh perspective on, on everything. And the, the brilliance of the movie, of course, is really Mark's uh, over a decade experience as a TV journalist and his ability uh, 
to compress information into just what really is important and to express it, you know, with uh, the professional skill of a, a narrator used to working uh, on, on television. I was so impressed with it that I took the time to transcribe all 90 minutes of it into an 11,000 word uh, document. Uh, I like to laugh that I was smart enough to take typing in high school. So I was uh, able to do what many people wouldn't be able to do. And I'm now breaking it up. I write uh, weekly for uh, cfact.org, an outstanding website on science that focuses on energy and climate. And I'm uh, breaking the transcription of the movie into at least a half a dozen articles that I will uh, uh, publish after running them by uh, Mark, because they're, they just bring simplicity to a complex subject. And uh, the audience uh, that watches the movie and reads uh, my articles uh, will come away uh, understanding things they never did before. So, Mark, uh, tell us briefly how you got into the energy field and when you did you realize that people were getting so much misinformation? Well, thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, all those compliments, Jay. I, I, I very much appreciate it. We worked very hard on Fractured. And the whole idea was to do just as you um, have suggested, which is to simplify everything to a point where you can really um, understand it, get it in a short period of time. So what happened with me is I was running my media consulting business and I was contacted by this small oil and gas trade group in my home state of New Mexico. And uh, I, so I started doing some media training with them, but with all of the clients that I have had, I have to do, um, you know, a certain amount of research and depth into their business. So I understand it enough that I can help them. Uh, and this thing, when I started learning about the oil and gas industry, my mind was absolutely blown. I was astonished that me, somebody who had worked in the TV news business for about a decade and who had covered oil and gas issues when I was working in Central California, that I was so completely ignorant of this industry and, and how important that industry is to the, the survival of the modern world. It's the foundation of the modern world. And then from there, I started learning about electricity and, and nuclear power and uh, wind and solar to, to, as I filled all of this out. And I was just absolutely astonished that, that, that I knew so little uh, about something that is so Im completely important to uh, our lives every day, every second of every day. So that was the thing that triggered all of my interest and passion in trying to get uh, the general public to understand the critical nature of energy. Well, Mark, you used the word astonished, and I would uh, say that uh, our listeners, if they see the movie Fractured, uh, they will be astonished at how much uh, they will learn and how much they didn't understand. But since you called the movie uh, Fractured, uh, are you able to give us a, a fairly short summary of uh, what is hydraulic fracturing and how did it change the, uh, the energy industry? Well, we called it Fractured, and the idea was the subtitle of the film is Language, Lies, and Energy. So 
there were, most of the film is about how the, the language that we use when we talk about energy is completely wrong. And, and one of the words that is used is, uh, well, a shortened version of the word fracturing, which is fract. And that word from the language standpoint is used as a pejorative uh, against the oil and gas industry about the extraction of these energy resources. Uh, but as far as hydraulic fracturing, what, what the, the folks in the industry do is they drill these wells, they go down vertically quite often. Uh, they'll, most often they'll go down a mile. They might go down as deep as two miles. And then the, they will turn the, the drill bit and the drill string so that it goes horizontally and, and then extend it out for a great distance. We have a video on our site where we talk about how uh, the, the longest uh, uh, well drilled is, is now almost six miles. It's truly astonishing feat. And we, we make the correlation between, you know, it isn't rocket science. Well, rocket science is, really has nothing on geoscience. Uh, so they, they run the string and they then put a plug on the other end. They uh, perforate, uh, drill, you know, basically blow holes through that pipe. Uh, and then they, they come in and they, uh, and they rush water, the hydraulic side of it, water, some sand that will hold, hold the cracks open and a small amount of chemicals. And these are uh, mostly for lubrication and to prevent bacteria from growing. And then they, they run that through high pressure to crack the rock, which enables them to pull out a lot more oil and natural gas. And they do this in sections throughout the entirety of the well. Well, this has completely revolutionized uh, the way that the industry works uh, just about every well now is hydraulically fractured. They, the, the boom to, the, to America and to the world really uh, uh, that came off of this was just um, truly amazing. We were in a, in a position in the United States where we were in such serious trouble with declining rates of oil and natural gas production. And when hydraulic fracturing came on board with horizontal drilling, it, it absolutely changed everything. Uh, and it made us energy secure for the first time since the 1970s. Well, Mark, I'll add, I'll add one thing uh, to what you said, because uh, everybody says what you said, and everybody sees a diagram of going down on a well uh, vertically and then turning horizontally, which uh, that isn't accurate. Nobody seems to understand that. Um, we use steel pipe, and the steel pipe is not flexible enough to turn a, at a right angle. In fact, it's very inflexible, but it can bend three degrees every uh, hundred foot of length. So you can turn it uh, 90 degrees, but it takes 3000 feet of depth. And most people don't recognize that. You can't draw it in a diagram to scale. So everybody kind of turns it at a right angle. But the <laughs> right. reason it, it's important to understand that you got to go down 3000 feet before you can go horizontal, you have, you have no chance of polluting uh, surface groundwater or drinking water because we don't have wells uh, that deep. So it would be better if, if people understood that. It also, they, they should understand we've been fracturing wells. Uh, actually, I, I checked this. I think 1947 was the first time we fracked a well, but we did it vertically. I personally was involved in a well in Texas in 1961. We had a 200-foot vertical seam of, uh, of oil and gas, and we, we plugged it above the 200 feet and below the 200 feet. We built up pressure and did just what you said, 
and we increase the flow, but only 200 feet. And now you're talking about uh, the wells being miles. Well, I mean, thousands of feet instead of 200. It's, it's amazing. Well, the, the idea that you could take a, uh, a, a steel pipe that is just as rigid as, as you could imagine and turn it three degrees and turn the next, you know, through the next 3,000 feet, turn it in another three, three degrees and keep doing that. And then really, when you talk about astonishing things, these uh, oil and gas drillers, they can hit what they call the pay zone, which is a, uh, a section of rock that they want to hydraulics, hydraulically fracture for the biggest payout of oil and gas uh, resources. And they can hit that within a span of feet uh, two miles down. This is really just astonishing um, in, in human uh, capability and way, the way that the industry has taken technology and so that it can produce these resources that are used for, for everything. Yeah. And to clear, to, to clear up another mystery, basically the, the drill bit itself is equipped with GPS and the driller from the surface can tell that drill bit to go up, down and sideways and do exactly what you say. Yes. So the GPS is actually transmitting through the rock. How does that work? Or is it by wire? What is it? No, it is. It's transmitted. Just it's really not that different than the GPS in your in your car or anything that uses GPS. It's it's part of the uh, the drill bit. Yeah. And it's uh, not transmitted by wire. It's uh, just uh, transmitted wirelessly to the drill bit. Wow. That's incredible. Now, Mark, what would happen if they actually did enable a fracking ban in places like Texas or Pennsylvania or Ohio. Like how significant would that be for those states? Uh, it would be catastrophic, really, uh, especially for, for those states. It would also be uh, for almost virtually every producing state, uh, New Mexico, uh, Louisiana, um, you know, but, uh, but Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Texas, those are, the big, those are really the big three, you know, North Dakota, uh, it, because you, the resources that, that are being extracted today, they're, as I mentioned, virtually all of them are hydraulically fractured. fractured. So you, to go to try to attempt to go back and drill and not use this technology would just collapse the industry. And so for each of those states, it would, the economic hit is really hard to imagine. It would be so gigantic. I mean, all three of them would go into a, a, you know, a statewide depression. Um, but, but more importantly, what would happen is that the United States itself, our reliance on oil and natural gas from other providers would, would jump up, skyrocket in very quickly to where we would return to the point where we uh, were before the shale revolution happened, and we were importing upwards more than 60% of our oil, where we were talking about, I was talking about when I first started learning about oil and natural gas, I was warning people, we're, we're in big trouble here. We're, we're going to run out of natural gas. This is just prior to uh, the shale revolution. We would return to those days rather quickly. And so all of the power would be transferred to who? our greatest enemies on the planet. So it's, it's people, it's nations like, uh, you know, it's, it's Iran, it's all of OPEC, it's Russia, China. Uh, it, we would completely collapse ourselves. We'd have no national security. 
the consequences would be are, are so extreme. They're really, uh, to me, are just unfathomable. We almost wonder if the environmentalists want to see that. I mean, maybe their goal is, in fact, to make it so that you don't have fossil fuels. I think some of them think that way, but I think most of them, uh, they, the reason they're able to think that way is they just really don't have much energy knowledge. And they don't understand that you cannot conflate energy with technology. Uh, they see how we've improved everything uh, when it comes to you know, how we use computers, how we automate everything. And they just assume that you're going to do that same thing with energy. We don't need these fossil fuels. What they don't understand is that same technology, our technological advances are the reason why things like hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling uh, have advanced to such high degrees. These are fundamentally different things. And it comes back to this, this reality of energy density, oil, natural gas. And when we build a nuclear plant, you use uranium. These energy sources are extremely dense. They produce a lot of energy for a small amount of resource input. Mm -hmm. Wind, solar, they are diffuse. Uh, they, they, you, it requires an enormous amount of land mass and, they, and what they produce is minimal compared to what you get out of oil and natural gas and coal. And they're also energy that, that one of the big things that, that people should understand is that wind and solar, they are the, the technologies that capture them they're not energy sources, they're energy technologies. And they capture natural energy, they capture the wind, or they capture the sun. But it takes, you know, because the energy source, the true source, you know, the sun and the wind, because it's so diffuse, you have to concentrate it. And once you and when you do concentrate it, it's nowhere near the density of oil, natural gas, coal, and uranium. Mm -hmm. you, you really you did you did something really funny in the movie uh, a couple uh, videos you showed from the Big Bang theory where Bob Newhart was a guest and uh, he was able to light a light bulb with a potato and uh, one of the ditzy uh, women on the <laughs> show said, "Wow, uh, we could energize the world with potatoes and Bob Newhart said, no." <laughs> and it just brought up, uh, I, to me, it really focused attention on the silly things people say of how we can energize the world. And another uh, example in, the, in a, a different episode was uh, blowing up a balloon and uh, letting the air escape from the balloon, making the balloon move. And it brought through your point about uh, having to collect energy with the sun and with the wind where with uh, oil, uh, nuclear, coal, gas, it's already been collected for us to use. Mm -hmm. yes. And yet you saw, you saw, Mark, that there's a group that is gaining momentum to try to ban hydraulic fracking you know, across the world. Over 600 grassroots groups, organizations, and scientists, they've signed a statement that says the following. We, the undersigned, support a call for a global ban on fracking being proposed by Ireland at the United Nations General Assembly on climate mitigation, public health, blah, 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 et cetera. And, you know, it strikes me that not just the United States, but surely the whole world would be hugely impacted. 
And from a social justice point of view, I mean, what would happen in, in the world at large if we truly banned hydraulic fracking? Um, the same thing, well, I, I think what you would see, first off, as I described before, is that in the United States, in Western nations, let's say the United States, Canada, Europe, they all jumped on this, this really what I think the only word, proper word to call it is insanity. Um, these currently prosperous nations would just collapse. And then the nations that are only doing lip service to this idea of, oh, there's a climate crisis and we must deal with it with uh, wind and solar, these nations would, would gain so much power uh, that the, the Western world the, the, the light of the world would be extinguished because you would have the, the most despotic regimes with all the power to run the world. Yeah, You know, yeah. The, the country that's not insane in this issue is China. Uh, they're smart enough to see and actually promote the idea of wind and solar while, you know, not really uh, using it seriously to recognize that uh, they will become the most powerful nation in the world if the other nations you've mentioned uh, go back into the dark ages. But, you know, historically, we've had dark ages. We've had periods uh, historically over the centuries where humanity went backwards because of uh, insanity, using that word, of, uh, of leadership. And that's clearly where we are. I always like to tell our radio audience that I am totally... Uh, optimistic. No matter what is going on, I believe the public will wake up to the insanity and uh, not let it happen. Uh, our leadership today wants it to happen. They actually, I'm convinced, uh, want all their new energy plans to fail, uh, but to hurt the nation enough that they then have to ration energy uh, because they know well enough that wind and solar cannot uh, supply our economy. So what are your views on uh, what would happen if America really tried to convert entirely to wind and solar, which uh, the nation is actually the current leadership, the state of California, they were all saying, and even I was on an airplane yesterday, United Airlines, and they showed a film on the plane with the president of United, United Airlines saying that in 2050, they will be totally carbon free and green. If that is an insanity, I don't know what it is. They're going to run their planes with biofuel or wind and solar. Uh, speak to that issue. <laughs> so many of these people who make these claims, uh, they know that it's not going to happen, but they are signaling to either shareholders or customers uh, they're doing in, uh, to, to politicians who have the ability to hurt them. And they're just saying these things knowing that as we get farther down the road toward this uh, utopia that they, they believe is on the, that, that so many people believe is, is just down the road, and it becomes real that, oh, no, that's not going to happen, that they will just continue business as usual. Uh, China is, uh, not only is China continuing to build uh, coal plants that are not nearly as clean as ours all across the nation. They are not, they're not even slowing their production of coal, uh, of, of power made from coal, but they are also 
using it strategically. They're building coal plants all over the world. We have a video on this uh, in, in, you know, in the, over the continent of Africa. They're essentially, China is really gonna own Africa here. Uh, they own a lot of it really already. And they're buying off African nations with power. They build them coal plants, they give them electricity, they give them a higher standard of living. And now these nations are greatly indebted to China. So what I see as happening is that the, we're gonna continue down this road for a while. How much longer? I don't know. Uh, you know, the big wake up, uh, it could have happened here in Texas in, uh, in February, but we narrowly avoided an absolute catastrophe. But at some point, there's going to be a breaking point and people are going to see that merely the attempt to try to uh, greatly reduce our use of oil, gas, and coal, and they're not really even in favor of nuclear power, that it, it is going to make our grid system unreliable to the degree that people are going to revolt. They're going to say, we don't want this. The pressure will, will, will be there. The, the power will turn. The people will, will move against their own governments because they will see, they will feel the pain. They will see the insanity of this and they will not have it. I mm -hmm. think that's where we're going. There's, there's no way it would be completely impossible to, to imagine to even get halfway to this is, and when I, I'm just talking about our grid, not all everything else that we use with direct use natural gas or with liquid fuels for transportation. But you, you're, you can't to even get halfway there under today's abilities. Uh, technologically and, and it's, it's, it's an impossibility. It's not, it's not going to happen. Well, what uh, happened I, in Texas? I mean, we're really, you know, are we risking a Texas type blackout across all of the developed world if we follow the environmentalist approach? Yes. Uh, and it's not, it's, it's many states. California is among them. Uh, I, I was just uh, reading some materials today about Michigan and how Michigan's reserve power is really down about 5% because when the wind stops blowing, as, it, as in Texas this week, we're getting messages, all of us who live here, you know, please conserve power, but our grid is reliable. It's, these are completely opposite things. Our grid is unreliable. And the reason it's unreliable is we have far too much wind power here in Texas. And when it gets hot, as it is this week, what happens is the wind doesn't blow. I'm looking out my window right now and the leaves are barely moving. Uh, you get out into West Texas, there's a little more breeze there. You have, uh, that's where a, a, a large number of our wind turbines are. So that power gets sent down uh, wires here to the, to the large cities of Dallas and, and Austin and Houston. Uh, but it, we don't have enough reserve power from reliable energy sources, coal, natural gas, nuclear. And we're, we're just running into this. This is a constant thing. Conserve power, conserve power, conserve power. We're right on the edge. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and, Mark, the mainstream media kept trying to tell us it wasn't wind power that caused the blackout, but wind surely played a huge role because I understand that a little before the storm, it was like about half your electricity and then suddenly it went to zero and then the storm yes. hit. So was wind actually a major factor in the Texas blackout? Wind was the entire reason for the blackouts, but not in the way that some people early on were suggesting. 
It wasn't because wind turbines froze and they did freeze. Um, that wasn't it. We, that we, we know that wind doesn't produce much power when it's, when it's cold, and we, and we sh but we don't have the reserve margin in place to make up for that. What the reason that wind is to blame. Now, by the way, I mean, people have said this is also a distraction that, you know, natural gas lines froze. And that also is true. A lot of that problem was because of the way the system is managed. ERCOT shut off power to the natural gas lines that were sending power to the natural gas power plants. This <laughs> is just a ridiculous situation. So, but even with all of those things considered, if none of that happened, we still would have had blackouts. It wouldn't have been bad, as nearly as bad, but we still would have had blackouts. The core reason, the reason that the media doesn't want to talk about is that we don't have enough base load coal, natural gas, and nuclear power. We don't have enough base load to make sure that when the demand is high, we are able to produce and not get close the amount of electricity that we need to run everything. Mark, in the second section of this, uh, of our radio show after the break, uh, let's go, well, first of all, uh, tell people what ERCOT stands for. They might guess, but perhaps not. But let's uh, have you explain how close Texas came to a total disaster uh, from that freeze. But let's let's hold that for the second part of our show. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll be right back after the break. We'll be talking about that topic, the moral panic about climate change. And also we'll talk about whether wind and solar are really green as we're told. Because of COVID-19, the average American worries about their immune health four times a day. That's 112 times per year. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains 15 full doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day pill-free gel pack. It tastes great, is convenient on the go, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. OutLoud.com is the alternative from the agenda-driven globalist. Here, we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. On-demand podcast or real-time talk radio with our streaming apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Mark, tell us, uh, my understanding, I've heard you say it, that the world does not know how close Texas uh, came to true disaster of, uh, 
unmentionable level. Uh, I think I heard that we were within four or five minutes of destruction, unimaginable destruction uh, due to a lack of uh, enough power on the electric grid. Could you explain that to our audience? Yes. The delivery of electricity was bungled so badly by ERCOT, which is the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which is it would be comical if it weren't so uh, disastrous. Reliability is in the name. And what they're doing is making a grid that is completely unreliable. They managed it so poorly that we got down within somewhere between four and five minutes that if they had made some incorrect decisions about what they call shedding load, which is uh, creating blackouts in specific areas so that the, the grid uh, system would remain within uh, one hertz of the 60 hertz system. Uh, the system can go as much as about one half of a percent above 60 hertz or one half of a percent lower. But if it gets outside of those two margins, now the system gets really unwieldy and things start blowing up. Uh, you, have, you would have problems with lines and transformers. Uh, and so we got into this danger zone and thankfully ERCOT managed to navigate those waters. But if they had made some bad decisions during that high tense time and done some things wrong, what would have happened is the entire grid, virtually the entire, almost the entire grid in the state of Texas would have collapsed. I don't think historically we've ever even seen a grid this large completely collapse like this. I don't think it's ever happened. We would, we would have seen some damage. It might've been significant. Nobody really knows to transformers, power plants. The estimate is that if this had happened, we would have been without power here in Texas for a minimum of six weeks. So if, if the people who run the system are telling you a minimum of six weeks, I think you could probably triple or quadruple that. So imagine yeah. this, you have the entire state of Texas in this deep freeze from all the way down to Houston. And, and I mean, we covered almost the entire state and everything's frozen. So now you don't have power across the entire state. Uh, so you have all the people who had frozen pipes. I was among them. The, the, you would have multiplied that by who knows how many. The roads in this state would have been impassable because of people panicking, trying to get out, uh, accidents, people running out of gas. You would not have been able to get gas because the gas supplies couldn't have been delivered because the, the gas pumps run on electricity. So nobody can get out, really. And who do you bring in? How in the world do you evacuate or deal with the loss of 30 million people. How do, you, how do you bring in enough people to bring all the resources that you need, food, water, fuel, medical services for 30 million people? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's not possible. This is a story never told. And it's a story that should be told. We've talked about making a movie, you know, about the Texas freeze that would explain to people how serious this is and how it could occur anywhere around the country if we stop using fossil fuels and, and reduce the resources for the electric grid. Uh, we talked about making a movie and you were, uh, maybe one day we'll achieve the funding to, uh, to make a, a, a low budget movie 
really to explain what you have just said because it's uh, it's scary. It's an apocalypse movie that could really happen. There are many thousands of people <laughs> listening to this radio broadcast. Maybe somebody out there would like to uh, invest a small amount of money in in making this movie because uh, it it could really show the public how disastrous the idea of trying to run the country on wind or solar and eliminate fossil fuels. It might uh, bring home the reality of uh, the danger they're playing with. Mm -hmm. You know, Mark, you brought up this business about the change that can be allowed in the frequency of the electricity. And I think that's worth going back to because not everybody knows what a Hertz is. So we're talking about the frequency, the cycles per second. And you're saying that it can't be more than how much off of the ideal? 60 Hertz is, is what the grid runs on. So it can't get more than 60.5 without getting unstable or mm. 59.5. At one point, it got down in Texas down to like 59.3. That instability is when things go haywire. And you just, you, that is, you are, you are all in the danger zone. You need to keep it at 60 hertz. And so mm-hmm. what utilities do is they have what's called spinning power. Uh, they've got natural gas turbines that are running all the time, that even though they're not putting power into the grid, so that when there is a, a sudden drop off, the wind stops blowing or, or is greatly reduced or a giant you know, cloud you know, goes over a solar array and you lose a lot of power, that natural gas powered, those turbines, are already spinning and they can, they can pump new pa- replacement power into the grid at a second's notice. So in fact, we don't get off fossil fuels no matter what you do with respect to wind and solar. Well, one of the, yeah, one of the big lies really is that, you know, the people talking about wind as, as a power source. Well, wind does, wind does not exist. Solar does not exist without natural gas. Because natural gas is constantly filling in the gaps when those uh, electricity technologies uh, fail or when they provide a lot less power than what we were expecting. Mm -hmm. I think it was Howard Hayden, who is a professor of physics at the University of Connecticut. He was talking about there being a maximum in a grid that can be the very intermittent wind and solar power. What was, I think it's like 20% or something. Once you get above that, the grid starts to become unstable. Do you know anything about that? Yes, I think, I think he's, he's correct. I mean, here in Texas, we're at, uh, the, you know, it depends on whose number you, you believe it could be as high as maybe 28%, uh, maybe as low as 25. We're already past that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and California is in the same situation uh, and they've got a lot more solar than we do. As you increase the volume of uh, unreliable intermittent power, you have to significantly increase the volume of baseload power that can jump in at a second's notice in order to fill that in. When you're trying to operate a grid, an electric grid, and the, the more of that unreliable power you introduce into a system that hates unreliability, the more vulnerable it becomes. My... Uh writing partner, uh, Tarigi Ciccioni and I, we uh, wrote a book last year called A Hitchhiker's Guide Through Climate Change. 
And we, uh, we coined uh, a rule of thumb in electrical engineering that uh, goes even a little bit farther than uh, Howard Hayden and what Mark just said about the backup. Uh, we believe that any amount of wind and solar that's adding to the grid has to be backed up by an equal or greater amount of fossil fuel energy uh, running full bore, uh, ready to go online in, in seconds when, as Mark said, uh, a cloud comes over the solar cells or the wind is uh, not blowing. So recognizing that you have to have this 100% backup, uh, all the wind and solar energy that is developed doesn't really have any value. I mean, it's out there and people are making gobs of money uh, building wind turbines and, uh, and solar areas and, uh, and, and selling it and getting, oh, at least 50% from uh, government uh, subsidies. People are making a lot of money, but it isn't adding anything of relevance uh, to the grid because you've got to just build more coal or natural gas or oil or some other form of energy you can count on 100% of the time and running it full to come on in seconds. Yes, and that's another reality of our electricity system that the vast majority of people in this country just have no idea. You, you have to have all of these backups. And that you're, so it's, this is a significant duplication of, of resources, which is extremely costly. And it's not green, right? I mean, wind and solar, we're told that they're green. And you see these pictures of them chopping up golden eagles. And, and of course, where does the materials come from, Mark? The entire modern world is run on critical metals and rare earth minerals. Every piece of technology has these elements in them. Well, we're not mining for this stuff in the United States. China is doing, all, is doing the vast majority of it. Australia is doing some. There's a few other, I think there are little bits of being done in Canada, but the full supply chain from the mining all the way to creating the magnets, the materials that go in all of our electronics is essentially monopolized by China. They have a near monopoly on that. So we're turning over power to China for everything. We have a couple of videos called uh, Rare Earth Emergency 1 and 2 that gets into all of that. Yeah, and aren't some of these materials being mined or processed by slave labor in China? Yes, and in Africa, because you know, in order to make car batteries, you need a lot of cobalt. It is slave labor, but it's not just slave labor, it's child slave labor. These children are going into these caves, into these extremely unsafe areas because they're small enough to get in there. You have cave collapses from time to time where these people are, are killed. But you've got these children. These, these are 10-year-olds these are mm -hmm. who, are, who are being forced to mine cobalt for a Tesla. My biggest problem with wind, especially, but also with solar, is the environmental impact. We've got enormous amounts of old wind turbine blades. But there's nowhere for these things to go. And there is a tidal wave of them still coming. Uh, mm -hmm. And because they cannot be recycled. So, we're, so we've got a few uh, landfills in the United States that are able to bury these things. But then you've got these solar panels that cannot be efficiently recycled and they contain heavy toxic metals. Then you have the, the, the impact of uh, 
of large raptors and bats that are that are very important to our uh, ecosystem. It just goes on and on. Mark, could you, uh, in a real brief summary, explain to our uh, listening audience uh, what a rare earth mineral is and why they're important in modern electronics? I'm guessing the vast majority of our audience knows the term, but never fully understood what they are. Yeah, these are these are elements that are in, in the soil, and we've got a lot of them in the United States. I know Canada has a lot as well. And they're, they're not called rare because they're rare in the sense that, you know, in their existence, they're actually all over the place. But they're rare in that they're, they're only small amounts of these minerals in, uh, in, the, in the total soil load. So you're using enormous amounts of earth to produce a small amount of these elements, which are very good at, at uh, conductivity and, and they serve different, different functions. But basically it's, to, it's, it's what has made our electronics so amazing are these uh, mineral elements. It, it, it's, a, it, it's a huge impact on the, on the surface of the earth. It takes a, just, just a, inconceivable amounts of, of load of raw earth materials that then have to be processed. That's also a very messy business. This is why China does most of it and they're absolutely destroying Inner Mongolia with this. There is nothing green about them. I mean, there is little question that uh, the creation of uh, wind turbines and solar cells and electric cars are many times more damaging to the environment than the production of uh, coal, oil, and natural gas. I, I agree. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the thing that, that bothers me, I don't hear anybody talking about this, is that we need, in the modern world, we need these technologies, these computers, these, uh, these phones, uh, our cars, all of these things, all of the, all, every piece of technology has rare earths and critical metals in them. We need that stuff to be conserved and used for the stuff that really matters. What we don't need to be doing is using gigantic amounts of this very valuable material that's hard to get. You have to disrupt the, the earth to a very large degree. We don't need to be wasting this on feudal energy sources like wind and solar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also with the electric vehicles here in Ottawa, for example, they want to bring our buses all to electric buses. I mean, where do they get the materials to make the batteries for EVs, for example? It, it's the same thing. Uh, and so you're, you're, you're using child slave labor in, in Congo. Uh, you're using rare earths that are, that are mined and then processed in China. And just think about this, Tom and Jay. Uh, you remember the 1970s and we were, you know, the OPEC had us over a barrel. Uh, and because of their, their sizable uh, control can control over a sizable portion of the oil market. What our so-called leaders are doing right now is they are trying to turn our transportation system in its entirety over to China mm-hmm. because China controls rare earth production. They control the processing uh, and they control battery manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So 
China, and, and this is this isn't even we're not even getting into the to the problems of China embedding through hardware and software ways in which they could completely shut down our transportation system. I think they probably already have that power in our electric grid. Mm-hmm. It's it's the 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 dim bulbs, or I guess a lot of them are just basically bought off. They're ignorant. I don't know. But the people who are running this country, I, I'm. <laughs> These people are destroying us. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that, you know, in one of your videos, you talked about the moral panic about climate change, where the impacts of the effort to, quote, stop climate change are far, far worse than the climate change impacts ever could be. Can you say a bit more about this idea of moral panic? Because I sure think it applies here. Yeah, moral panics are, these are not all as uncommon as, as people think. The Salem witch trials are the most famous example of a moral panic. We all know what happened there, but there are many other moral panics that we have seen uh, even just in the last, you know, 40, 50 years. For example, Y2K was a big moral panic. Uh, Everybody ran around and said, because of this computer code and the way that it was written and and they didn't use the first two numbers of the year. So instead of saying 19, 78, they just put 78. When we hit the year 2000, everything's going to come crashing down. So the world spent somewhere on the order of $600 billion. Half of that was in the United States to make everything Y2K compliant. And in the end, most nations really hadn't done a whole lot of work. The United States did a lot, but was certainly not compliant. And then essentially nothing happened. The idea of stranger danger, that's another one, that there are people just you know, lurking around wanting to abduct children. That was also a moral panic. That does happen, but it's extremely rare. And the, the media led the public to believe that it was, it was far more common than it was. I think COVID-19 is a moral panic. Because if you look at the five, not that, not that COVID-19 isn't a real thing, it is. It is dangerous as other viruses and diseases can be, and a lot of people have died from it. All of that is very true. I don't so but the the panic that happened because of COVID-19 was completely disproportional to the threat of COVID-19. So there are five elements. You have concern, everybody's worried about something, and you have consensus. Everybody comes together and says, yes, this is the problem. This is what we need to do about it. Then there's hostility. This is, we need to attack anybody who is against what we are trying to do. Then there's disproportionality. So the the measures like, oh, let's lock down the entire world because of a virus that, you know, (laughs) is for anybody who's under the age of 60 and you're healthy is, you know, you have virtually no chance of dying. It's wildly disproportional to the threat. And then the last one is volatility is that they tend to uh, move in and move out. They, they, happen, they happen quickly and then they kind of dissipate. So that doesn't really fit the model for climate hysteria, but it really does. And the reason that it does is that, is that the people who are promoting the climate crisis narrative are always there with something new because, because the climate, weather, always always throwing something at us. So it might be a hurricane or a tornado or a drought. That's what climate is. But so this, it's this never ending supply of things that they can point to and say, see climate change. 
So this whole climate crisis thing is, is an ongoing um, moral panic. And I think it is the greatest, most destructive mass delusion in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't know the basic facts. I mean, if you ask them, how much is it warm since 1880? People will say, oh, five, eight degrees. It's actually only a little over one degree Celsius. So, I mean, the actual data doesn't back up the idea that we're going to hell in a handbasket, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and as, as a number of authors uh, have explained, uh, you know, Steve Coonan's one of the, one of the latest, uh, you know, Michael Schellenberger just came out, uh, Mark Morano's n- new book. I mean, all of these things that are supposedly getting worse, hurricanes and tornadoes and droughts, and none of these things are true. None of these things are happening. But the... The people pushing the narrative, the opportunists, the corporate opportunists, the, the political ideologues, these people, this is, this is their, the strongest tool. It's, it's really become a religion that they can use to achieve their ends, whether it's making money, status, or, or control really is the big one. Solar and wind power supporters say fossil fuels get more subsidies than wind and solar. And I, I know that is not true. Could, could you explain a little bit of how those subsidies uh, end up paying for most of the bill with wind and solar and very little with fossil fuels? Yeah, one of the things they never talk about is the fact that oil and natural gas, the, the companies that, that exploit these resources, that produce them, they're paying uh, taxes. They're paying really, uh, they're paying royalties, whether it's be, be front to a government agency or whether it's to a private uh, landowner, they are pumping, you know, billions of dollars into federal, uh, local, and state treasuries. Uh, wind and solar do not do that. They do the exact opposite. They are are given preferential treatment when it comes to the grid. They are what I call free riders. The grid system is there. It's a, it, it 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 is running on baseload power sources, and wind and solar allowed to just jump into the system and produce power when they can, which is only 25, 30% of the time. They're free riders. It takes, here's a good example. In the state of Texas, you've got these, these large transmission lines that bring electricity from West Texas over to the, to the big population centers. You have to run that down those lines. Those lines had to be built because of wind and solar. They wouldn't have had to have been built with conventional power. Wind and solar are allowed to undercut the system. We've got a video on this on how the electricity is bid for in markets like Texas, where it's not a regulated market. And wind and solar are always given preferential treatment, always, on bidding on how much power they're going to put into the system. And then they are paid an amount of money that is the, what's called the clearing price that's established typically by natural gas. Kind of technical, but we, uh, I think we explain it pretty well uh, in the video on our site. These subsidies, which are hidden taxes, are all over the place when it comes to wind and solar. And how much we give them, give them, give them in order for, for them to produce power that is really a drain on the system. And then we had talked earlier about the fact that you that natural gas has to back up these electricity providers. So when they don't produce, 
got to have spinning reserve from natural gas in order to keep the grid stable. All that has to be paid for, but wind and solar aren't paying for it. Mm -hmm. So just to end off, Mark, if you can give us some sort of a quick comparison between the real cost then of wind and solar and baseload fossil fuels, like we're told they're cost competitive, but are they really? No, they're not cost competitive because if you were to be able to extract all of the, the subsidies, if tomorrow we said, okay, there's no subsidies, there's no subsidies for oil and natural gas, there's no subsidies for wind and solar, the, the wind and solar industries would completely collapse because they could not compete without those subsidies. It's often claimed that oil and gas companies or coal companies, they get all, all of these extra subsidies. That is also untrue because most of the uh, so-called subsidies aren't really subsidies. What they are are tax breaks or accelerated depreciation. They are accounting maneuvers that the companies use so uh, to, to, to their economic interest, but they are still paying the tax. They might pay it sooner or they might pay it later, but they're still paying the tax. And on top of that, they're producing resources that are heavily taxed and that they have to pay royalties on. So there's a lot of money coming out of those resources that's going into the bank accounts of federal and state governments, which is the opposite of what's happening with wind and solar. They're extracting extra money out of governments and their and out of the rate payers and the taxpayers. Huh, wow. Well, that was a great summary, Mark. We really enjoy having you on. So Mark Mathis, people should look him up at clearenergyalliance.com. This is Tom Harris and Jay Lear signing out from the other side of the story. 